Believe it or not, there are some things that even Tom Cruise can't improve upon. Welcome to the Crooked Table Podcast, where we discuss the world of film from a fresh angle. And now your host, Robert Yanis Jr. Welcome to the Crooked Table Podcast, this is Rob. On this episode, we're going to be talking about The Mummy 2017 edition, the ostensible launch pad for Universal's Dark Universe, starring Tom Cruise, and traveling back to the 1999 edition, starring Brendan Fraser. Also, stay tuned for an encore segment. But first, before we get into all things Mummy, a couple other things I wanted to touch base on. First of all, I saw the new film, It Comes at Night. This is the what's being marketed as a horror film from A24, the distribution company behind films like Moonlight and Ex Machina and Free Fire, which we did a whole episode on uh, just a couple months ago. And this one stars Joel Edgerton, Carmen Ajogo, Christopher Abbott, and a few others. And it's basically the story of this family living sort of in isolation amid a sort of, a, a kind of, I guess, a post-apocalyptic world where there's basically this plague out there and people are getting sick and they're not sure why. And they come upon another family. And, and uh, from there, it really dovetails into uh, a lot of themes of paranoia and, and grief and, and just like dealing with the, the situation that they are sort of trapped in. And um, uh, this movie's been getting very negative to mixed reviews from moviegoers, but well, critics are, are over the moon for it. And I think after seeing it myself, I can sort of see why. Because the film, if you look at the trailers, it does. There are they are really pushing this as a supernatural horror film, whereas the actual film itself doesn't really explicitly. Spoilers, I guess, a little bit. Doesn't really explicitly go into supernatural elements. There's a lot of dream sequences to sort of throw you off. There's a lot of long, lingering tracking shots uh, and very few jump scares. Um, except for when you're coming out of dream sequences, I guess. Um, but the, the film is much more sort of a, a thriller slash family drama situation focusing on this family and the situation they're in. It's more about being... Uh, suspenseful and claustrophobic and um, and and that kind of thing. It's, it has a totally different vibe from what they're selling in the poster and in the trailers and things like that. And they're really playing up the mystery of oh, what is out there that's outside, that's that's coming at night. Um, and uh, I think people going in with that expectation are going to be disappointed. However, if you go in knowing that it's not going to be what you're expecting, I think there's a lot of good things. In the film, I think um, director Trey Edward Schultz, who did the movie Cretia last year, that's got a lot of critical acclaim. I think the film has shows a real artistry. I mean, uh, Schultz is, is a real master behind the camera at, at pulling off uh, atmosphere and mood and getting really authentic performances from his actors. I just think that it comes at night. It's one of those movies that really frustrates me in a way despite the artistry and style that obviously was put into the film and the, the efforts of Edgerton, uh, Ojogo and, and some of the other, some of the other stars, the young man in the film is actually, uh, specifically one of the best, one of the best, uh, aspects. He's basically for all intents and purposes, one, like, I guess you could make an argument that he is the main character of the film. Um, and his name is Kelvin Harrison Jr. He plays the character Travis, who's the son in the family, and the original family. And I think that there there's a lot of interesting thematic elements thrown into the film. It's just for me, I like my movies when they raise so many questions to at least take a side by the end on something or provide a, a twist. And sort of the big twist, minor spoilers here, sort of the big twist and It Comes at Night is that there isn't really as much of a twist as you would think. Like, it seems to be something you sort of suspect it might be that. And it sort of ends up being that. I mean, um, and I, I was kind of expecting it to, like, for the twist to make the whole film, to make me want to go back and re-watch the whole film from the beginning to sort of see it from a different perspective and, and try and see hints for the twist coming. And I didn't find the twist in, in It Comes at Night, if you can call it a twist, or the ending, I guess. I didn't really find it super, super satisfying. I found it more matter-of-fact than anything, which I guess for a film 
that's as inherently straightforward as it comes at night, especially considering the marketing is not. I think there's a weird disconnect there. But it's of course it's unfair to, to judge the film based on the marketing campaign itself. Um, but as as a narrative, I feel like it was a little bit all over the place and lacked focus in, in areas, even if the execution as far as the concept and the performances and the the look of the film, the score of the film, uh, that was all top notch. It's just I wish that the story was a little uh, a little tighter. Um, not necessarily even more fast-paced, just more satisfying in the end. And for me, it sort of left me walking out being like, well, that was a well-made movie, but I don't really have any interest in ever revisiting it. Um, unless, you know, maybe it is one of those films that you watch again and it grows on you, and then you, you sort of do come to appreciate the story um, on another level upon subsequent viewings. I just don't, for me, I don't really have the motivation to go back and, and, uh, and visit it. Other than to marvel at sort of some of the cool sh shots that Schultz put together. And I will be checking out listening to the score uh, in the coming week now that I've seen the film and such. So uh, so those are just my quick thoughts and it comes at night. All things considered, even though I had issues with the film, I probably would still go three, three and a half. Um, three and a half sounds, it sounds like a good rating for this because it does offer a lot of strong elements. Even if, for me, they didn't quite take it to the next level or reach the potential that the story could have. Uh, but that's just, uh, as everything with film and, and art in general, that's totally subjective. Some people might go into this and think it's the best movie of the year. And, um, and um, you know, that's my perspective on that. So, also, one other thing. We don't usually talk about news on here very much. Maybe we should start doing that. Because we got a lot of updates on X-Men Dark Phoenix this week. And... I, I'm, as you guys know, I'm a huge fan of the X-Men franchise. We had a whole episode I did on Logan, uh, recently, and, um, I did a video review on Deadpool, so, an uh, X-Men Apocalypse, so I have a lot, well, not Deadpool, but X-Men Apocalypse, and, um, I have a long history of, of love for the X-Men characters and franchise, go, going all the way back to the 1990s cartoon. So here we found out this week that, um, well, first of all, that the cast of, First Class and Days of Future Past and Apocalypse is returning. Uh, we kind of already knew that Alexandra Ship and uh, Sophie Turner and Ty Sheridan and some of them would be coming back as the younger versions of the original main uh, main cast as Jean Grey and Storm and Cyclops and uh, Nightcrawler, Cody Smith-McPhee coming back as Nightcrawler, I believe. But now we know that the returning cast of the main cast of the First Class trilogy, that being James McAvoy, Michael Fassbender... Nicholas Holt, and even Jennifer Lawrence, who was quite vocal in the fact that she did not like wearing the Mystique makeup, and um, she seemed like she was transitioning out of these films, because she was only signed for three, so everyone sort of assumed that she was done, so I don't know if Fox offered her up a, a nice paycheck to come back, because they, they want her star power to sort of boost the film, or she's got a much reduced role, and she's going to basically amount to a cameo in this one. And if they maybe they kill her off because we don't know in the new timeline. I mean, the continuity for the X Men films is already ridiculous, but in the new timeline, we don't 100% know what happened to Mystique in the you know post you know post apocalypse and post apocalypse. That's funny. Um, like up to the modern you know the 2000s and the current age, we don't know what what happened to her, and the timeline has now diverged thanks to Days of Future Past. So really, they can do whatever the hell they want with uh with mystique so i wonder if i suspect that jennifer lawrence will be back very briefly um with really james mcavoy and michael fassbender sort of carrying the weight because since the beginning the two main uh, relationships of this franchise have been charles and wolverine as you saw in logan and and days of future past and charles and eric magneto so I um I think that they'll probably be carrying the weight of this, and Jennifer Lawrence will be appearing briefly. But I I don't know how I feel about this because I I do think McAvoy and Fassbender are tremendous assets to the f franchise, and I think that they've uh, lent a lot of gravitas to those roles, really living up to Patrick Stewart and Ian McKellen, which is hard to which is kind of impressive considering the uh, caliber of actor that. Patrick Stewart and um, Annie McKellen are and what they bring to those roles. 
I thought that McAvoy and, and Fassbender did an excellent job sort of seamlessly slipping into that. And I'm excited to keep them around. Nicholas Holt and Jennifer Lawrence I'm a little more mixed on, just because they haven't seemed particularly passionate about these projects, uh, Lawrence specifically. And, uh, you know, their characters are heavily, you know, with makeup and prosthetics and things like that. And I don't want, I don't want to, basically I don't want a watered-down version of Beast and Mystique. I don't want a, a Hank McCoy and a Raven Darkholm who show up basically looking like people for the whole movie, not in their true mutant form. That would piss me off. So if they're going to have them come back and just not put them in makeup and come up with some excuse for them not to be in makeup like they did with uh, with Beast in Days of Future Past or Mystique in Apocalypse, then I'd rather they just write them out and be like, oh, they're off on some mission somewhere or whatever. Uh, don't necessarily have to kill them off screen like they did with Days of Future Past with all the other mutants other than Mystique and Beast, basically. Um, but yeah, just have them be off somewhere. We don't need them in here if they're just going to bog it down. Plus, I worry that having too many characters here, they're gonna, they're gonna overwhelm the Dark Phoenix saga yet again, and uh, we're not gonna let Sophie Turner sort of rise to the forefront. That being said, I am also happy that Jessica Chastain is in talks to play the villain here because Jessica Chastain is amazing in all things, and I think that you know she would bring uh, bring this to another level in a lot of ways, and it's it's being reported that she's playing the uh, empress of the alien empire known as the Shi'ars. Now, not being 100% a comic book person, I'm not specifically, uh, I'm not particularly well-versed on all the details of the comics because I am more of the film, TV, that kind of guy. Um, so she will be playing a Lilandri, Lilandra, the empress of the Shi'ar empire, as I mentioned, who leads the quest to imprison and execute the Dark Phoenix. Sending her into conflicts with the X-Men. This is coming straight from the Hollywood Reporter's take on the, on the news. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm game for that. I don't think we, we want to see Dark Phoenix necessarily as the main villain the whole time. I have a sense that Chastain would be sort of the main villain for, like, maybe the first two acts until Dark Phoenix really loses control. Sort of like, uh, sort of like The Last Stand, only not terrible, hopefully. But, um... But yeah, Jessica Chastain coming in here, I think she's an incredible actress, and I think she'd do a great job uh, adding to the, the X-Men canon and being yet another celebrated actor coming into a comic book role. We're seeing that more and more these days, and um, you know this this seems like a good opportunity for her to, to uh, chew the scenery a little bit, in a similar way to Kate Blanchett and Thor Ragnarok. So... My my only cons one of my only main concerns here with this film is that it's being directed by Simon Kinberg. Now Simon Kinberg was actually a writer on writer and producer on several of the past X Men films, including X Men: The Last Stand, in including um, Days of Future Past and First Class and Apocalypse. Like he's been working on this. He's been one of the key elements of this franchise for the last several years. Um, really since, let's see, uh, I think, yeah, since X-Men First Class, he's been on board as a producer on pretty much all these movies, including Deadpool, including, uh, including Logan, things like that, but he has a writer, he's, he's actually written Apocalypse, Days of Future Past, uh, Last Stand, and that's, that's it as far as writing X-Men films. He's also done other movies like Mr. and Mrs. Smith, and, and, um, you know, the Fantastic Four from 2015, but uh, Sherlock Holmes from 2009. But there's not anything there to make me feel like he's capable of 100% pulling this off. Uh, this is also his directorial debut, which makes me a little nervous for such an important uh, story. I sort of almost want, even though Brian Singer clearly is getting X-Men fatigue with uh, Apocalypse, I sort of wanted him to come back. For this one since he didn't get a chance to do his uh um his phoenix story proper in last stand and jumped ship to do superman returns i was hoping he would stick around and sort of see through to see that through to the end after apocalypse sort of hinted at the dark phoenix saga but if anything i feel like kimberg at least has something to prove because he was responsible in part for last stand which botched the storyline so royally about 11 years ago I feel like he, he feels more pressure to make it work this time. So whether or not it, it does, I mean, we have to wait and see. But 
hopefully, hopefully, he's hopefully somebody is is making sure that this does not get jacked up. The fact that he wrote um, Days of Future Past and Apocalypse also kind of worries me because I feel like those screenplays are are a little overwhelmed with elements and Apocalypse in, in particular has so much going on and and some of it works and some of it doesn't it's a very i mean you can see my video review of apocalypse uh in the show notes as well as you know my thoughts on logan but there is not there's nothing in there to make me think that he can handle going even bigger than apocalypse or not necessarily bigger but the same level of effects the same level of story complexity um because apocalypse was even though i enjoyed it and I, of course, I own it because, like I said, I love the X Men franchise. It's definitely like fifth out of the out of the six X Men, you know, X Men team films. It's definitely towards the bottom end of those. Um, so, having the guy that wrote that one and Days of Future Past, which suffered some of the same overblown problems, but I think pulled them off in a better way, thanks to the time travel conceit and the the split narrative there. Uh, I don't. I'm a little concerned about how Dark Phoenix is going to turn out with uh, with Kinberg in charge. Um, maybe he'll prove us wrong. I hope so. Uh, he's he's you know I really liked his his work on Days of Future Past, um, but as far as Apocalypse and Last Stand, he basically wrote both of the weakest uh, X Men team films. And when I say team, I mean non Wolverine, non Deadpool, obviously. So. Uh, I, I don't know. I, I would have preferred someone else maybe in charge of this or at least directing it. So there would be, a, but the fact that, so there'd be like a little more, uh, more diversity of opinions as opposed to Simon Kinberg handling the whole thing as writer, producer, director, and blah, blah, blah. I'm sure Brian Singer will be involved here as a producer, but, um, yeah, so that, that can worries me a little bit. I do like the fact that if we're going to continue this, this, um, time jump with each film in this current first class franchise, whatever we're going to end up calling this, the prequel franchise or the other timeline. Um, I do like that this is now going to be set in 1991, we've learned. Uh, I think that's interesting. It's around the same time that I was really big into X-Men. Um, so hopefully they'll use the 1990s cartoon theme because if they don't, that's a tremendous uh, missed opportunity. Just weave it into the score. I don't know who they're getting to score this thing. But just weave that into the score a little bit and have like undertones of na -na 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 or something. I think that would be amazing. I don't think they'll do it, but I think it would be cool if they do. I wonder if there's a rights issue there or or not. I'm not quite sure what the what the deal is with that. But um, you know, we would we went from 60s to 70s to 80s to 90s. So that's that's sort of feels like they're painting themselves into a corner. Even though I do like the time jumping thing. It sort of does feel like, well, the next one would be the 2000s, which puts us at the 2000 X-Men film from um, from Brian Singer. So I don't know if they're planning on continuing with this timeline and just sort of Star Trekking it and have like, well, that was the we reset the timeline, so now we can go forward and like rewrite those other films and and maybe that that seems like they are that is probably what they're intending on doing. I doubt that they're envisioning Dark Phoenix and being the last of this franchise, this prequel franchise. Um, but uh, but yeah, so we'll see what we'll see what happens with that. I I was kind of hoping that Apocalypse would have marked the end of this trilogy and opened up the doors for the X Men franchise to sort of move into something fresher and not be rehashing old storylines and using the same characters over and over and over again. Um, because I sort of feel like now we're gonna get another three films with Cyclops and Jean and Storm and all over. You know, that's like we already did as opposed to focusing on things like the Deadpool sequel or X-Force or New Mutants. I mean, there's so much thing. There's so much opportunity in the X universe, which is unlike the Spider-Man universe over at Sony, where they're trying to do Venom as his own non-MCU shared universe. There's so many stories they can tell using the characters from just X-Men that Fox can literally keep this going forever and not necessarily have to be repeating themselves over and over with here's Wolverine again here's Cyclops and Jean again here's uh, Magneto and and uh, Professor X again it's like you guys have other stuff going on I was so or I was hoping that Deadpool would have been sort of the launch pad for a 
rebooted universe in a way and the start fresh either in a different timeline or a different you know jump further ahead in the chronology or just focus on other characters just you know don't don't be like kind of beating this dead horse so to speak um because apoc i don't even know who really was wanted to see more from who wanted to see a follow-up after apocalypse because i know that was very weakly um received in general from critics and and some audiences it was very mixed i believe and the box office was okay but it wasn't like deadpool logan numbers so it, it, it's boggling my mind that they're still really pushing this. Unless they are intending Dark Phoenix to be the end and have it be a four-parter. Maybe that's what they're thinking. It's it's hard to tell with the X-Men films because Fox does kind of seem like they're making it up as they go along. But after Logan and Deadpool, it does feel like they're finding a sort of creative excuse me, creative renaissance. And not necessarily just because those films are R-rated. just feels like they're taking risks and trying something different. But then so it makes it that much more frustrating when they reset to sort of uh, $200 million CGI fest of, you know, the same kind of X-Men film you've been watching for 20 years. Um, but maybe Dark Phoenix will, will will dream a little bigger like Logan and Deadpool and try something different. I, I don't know. Well, I haven't seen anything really from Simon Kimberg to necessarily make me think that. But at least next year we have not only Dark Phoenix, but we also have Deadpool 2 and we have the New Mutants, as I mentioned. So uh, it's it's an interesting time for the X-Men franchise. I feel like, I, I think that, you know, Dark Phoenix will sort of be the, after Apocalypse, be the make or break point where we're either going to continue with these traditional team films like we've been doing with the First Class trilogy, or we're going to let this be the end of that um, and and take it, take it in a new direction and finally let that template of X-Men film go. I mean, it has been 20 years, and the DCEU is only four movies in, and they're already taking chances with certain things, and the MCU is definitely evolving constantly, uh, so it would seem. So we'll we'll see what's happening. I'd like to see, maybe Dark Phoenix will mark the end of an era that I thought Apocalypse should have, but we'll, we'll find out next year, and of course, you know, we'll, we'll all stay tuned to see what, what news comes up next. So that'll take us uh, that'll end our like I guess catch up segment. This is not a, there's no official name for this opening segment, but it's essentially me just catching up on films I may have seen that's not getting full review and just news items and things like that. So that'll take us into our review of the Mummy. You are alive because you were cursed. Cursed by what? The ultimate evil. Welcome to a new world of gods and monsters. You saw that, right? <laughs> oh. Oh, I saw that, Tom. And I part of me kind of wishes I didn't. But, you know, we're getting ahead of ourselves. For those of you who are new to our review segments, we talk about the hype, the story, the cast, the production, and the verdict. However, for this one, we're going to be looking at not only The Mummy 2017, but we're going to be also comparing and, and referencing the 1999 version of The Mummy, starring Brendan Fraser, uh, Rachel Weisz, John Hanna, etc., etc., because both are attempts to remake the 1932 original starring, starring Boris Karloff and um, kind of kickstart a, not kickstart a, a, a shared universe, because The Mummy was not trying to do that, the 1999 version. The Mummy 99 was actually just trying to make a standalone film that then became a franchise itself, but... The Mummy 2017 is, is burdened with a whole bunch of other stuff. So let's go into first, let's back it up a second. First, let's go into the hype. Coming out in 2017, the uh, 20, uh, 2017 version of The Mummy is Universal's launch pad, or it's intended to be Universal's launch pad into the Dark Universe. They even have a Dark Universe logo that comes out at the beginning of the film. Sort of, let, sort of letting you know you're watching a Dark Universe production. Um, 
And this is intended to be a shared universe with all the classic universal monsters. It's the Invisible Man, Dracula, Frankenstein's monster. Um, we've even learned recently that you, we're going to get um, Phantom of the Opera and Hunchback in here somewhere, somewhere at some point down the line. But they've renounced a cast, Johnny Depp, Invisible Man, uh, Javier Bardem as Frankenstein's monster. Um, they, they keep bringing, they're bringing a, a very high caliber of actor in here, and they're already announcing plans for, I believe, Bride of Frankenstein is the next big remake coming out, with Bill Condon, who did Beauty and the Beast most recently, um, directing that film. And Javier Bardem is one of the stars, obviously. So they're betting, Universal's betting heavily on this, that this could be a, a sort of third pillar to their franchise uh, library now that they have the all the minions and Despicable Me stuff and they have the Fast and Furious. They're really hoping that this can sort of... Well, and they have Jurassic World. It's like, come on, Universal, stop getting greedy for these billion-dollar franchises. Um, so this is them sort of planting a stake in the ground and be like, we want a shared universe too. We're going we're gonna to make... All these monsters come together, I guess, Monster Squad style, for you for you uh, 80s babies out there who grew up with that film, um, at some point, and have them all team up because uh, monsters are going to fight probably a bigger threat down the line. Um, so, so the Mummy 2017 not only has to fulfill the story that it's trying to tell of this mummy... Uh, what is her name? I forget her name. Amanet. Sorry, that's it. Uh, I just remembered it. Um, of her name, of Amanet coming back and, and sort of cursing the Tom Cruise character and, um, you know, bringing, bringing him aboard as sort of her mate, so to speak. The film also has to plant the seeds for a much larger universe to come. That means we get Russell Crowe as Dr. Henry Jekyll slash Mr. Hyde. That means we get all kinds of little Easter eggs and teases for, hey, all these other monsters and creatures exist out there. Some of them from a black lagoon. And, and uh, you know, the film is sort of tries to pull off both of those, both of those ends in equal measure. And we'll get to whether or not it's successful. So as far as the 99 version, that was just remaking, re-envisioning the classic Universal monster film from the 30s, but in a modern context. So there was big CGI sandstorms, and there was, you know, uh, the mummy wasn't wrapped in gauze. The mummy actually was like a decaying corpse. Um, and, it, and it did a really good job of modernizing that and, and sort of making it seem like an exciting action, adventure, thrill ride type deal. Uh, for the summer audience. This actually came out the beginning of May, if I remember correctly. And to me, it was one of the first ones that really... One of the first films to really establish early May as the beginning of the blockbuster, you know, summer movie season. And since then, of course, we have a Marvel movie every every May. I think a couple years later, um, Sony put Spider-Man, the, the 2002 version, um, at like May 4th or May 2nd or something of that year and then that I think that officially cemented it but the mummy for me was one of the first ones to sort of to sort of uh, make early May a a go-to slot um, for for studios to try and and get their their biggest uh, tent poles sort of established in and uh, that it, it had a it, it was selling a very Indiana Jones style vibe just from even from the marketing I mean you had uh, a period piece that they were focusing on and everything and it, it was it it seemed like a an interesting way of taking this older property and bringing it into the modern age so even though the film itself was not set in the modern age but the mummy 2017 is is set in present day and and tries to update it yet again and we'll go into in a second which is uh, more successful and and why so Moving into the story, so the 2017 film stars Tom Cruise as Nick Morton, sort of a, a soldier slash treasure seeker slash con artist slash whatever, he is, ladies man, I don't even know, um, I guess, and uh, he comes across the tomb of Princess Amanet, played by Sofia Botella, 
and uh, essentially becomes cursed. She selects him, spoilers, she selects him, I guess, I guess mild spoilers, not really, this isn't the trailer. She selects him for something, I won't get into the details, and then he, she's sort of chasing him down, and he has to like outrun the mummy, but also find a way to, to liberate himself. Um, then you have Annabelle Wallace as Jenny Halsey, who's, uh, I don't know, a, a romantic interest slash person that he deal. I don't know, someone that he deals with, um, who's from a, a, I believe she says she's from a law enforcement agency at some point early on. Um, of course, Tom Cruise, Nick Morton's interaction and and quest with the mummy leads him to this organization called Prodigium. This is again in the in the marketing, um, led by Russell Crowe's Henry Jekyll. And uh, and the film is to me is is very meandering. It it doesn't really, it doesn't really nail down exactly. As you could tell from the beginning a few minutes ago, it doesn't really nail down exactly who this guy is, Nick Morton, why we should care. It doesn't it doesn't invest us at all in the love story between him and Annabelle Wallace's character. Um, I mean, this is mild spoilers because this is early on, but they they've had like a one night stand. And for some reason, she's now they're like cosmically linked like they're meant to be i guess which made no sense and i did not buy into in the slightest um you have the whole prodigium element being a secret organization which is very shield-esque and sort of out of nowhere there's huge segments of the film that just focus specifically on that there's a whole mr hyde sequence in this film i mean that shouldn't be a spoiler you know if you're getting henry jekyll that if you don't get mr hyde they're kind of wasting their time but there's a lot of stuff in this film that really it, it takes tremendous detours where you think that it's going to be a mummy story and then all of a sudden they're like oh but here's the backstory for the overall for the overarching uh, dark universe mythology you're going to need to know this for future films and um, there's a lot of monologuing and exposition and uh, i mean there's a whole thing with Jake Johnson's character that's very American Werewolf in London, and not in a good way, because, that, I mean, American Werewolf in London is an amazing movie, and this is a tremendous mess, and a big misfire, and I don't know whose creative decision it was to take that character in that direction, but that did not work for me at all. Um, basically, what I'm getting at is The Mummy 2017 is a fucking mess. It, it makes, very little of it makes sense, it's tonally all over the place, uh, Tom Cruise is crack, cracking a joke one minute, and then we're supposed to be buying into his his search for his humanity by the end. Um, there's shades of him sort of doing a little bit of what he did of Edge of Tomorrow, where he's playing a reluctant action hero who's kind of kind of a, a, a wuss and kind of a, a coward and kind of kind of an asshole, basically. So, and I and I I, I appreciate that Tom Cruise likes to keep putting putting himself out there and playing these in a lot of ways reprehensible characters um in between performances of Ethan Hunt I think uh, I think he likes to to sort of poke fun at his leading man status at this point and and play uh and play kind of terrible people who become slightly less terrible by the end but for me I didn't care enough about this character to really see what happened to him to see to have him uh, free himself from this curse. I really didn't care about him or any of the characters in this film. Really, there was nobody in this. There was no. There's nothing. No. No story elements in this film that really worked for me a hundred percent. I mean, there's some cool CG and stuff, and we'll we'll get into that with the production part of it. But story wise, there this was a kind of incomprehensible mess. And if this is any indication of what we're getting from the Dark Universe going forward, I am very worried. Whereas the 1999 Mummy, which is another film that, like I said, tried to remake the 1932 one. That one's really, I mean, I liked it already, but in seeing the 2017 attempt to re reboot the uh, the Mummy or redo the Mummy storyline, that 99 one, man, that that shines even from, even more so now. In that one, we have Brendan Fraser as Rick O'Connell, sort of a, a again, a soldier slash treasure seeker who uh, who comes across, 
who who's basically recruited by a librarian and her brother uh, to look for the lost city of Hamanaptra in ancient Egypt, and in doing so, she's sort of she's she's really more of the uh, I guess looking for you know f proof of this ancient civilization, and and he's just kind of in it for the he's more merced he's more of a mercenary. The Brendan Fraser character. He's really more of a Han Solo slash Indiana Jones type. He's a very, basically very Harrison Ford. It's really Brendan Fraser uh, channeling his inner his inner Harrison Ford. Whereas Rachel Weisz, who which, this was the first movie I saw her in um, before she became an Oscar winner. Um, this film really nails sort of the old school, like pulpy 1930s uh, action adventure style. Um, it feels very throwback in a lot of ways, and director Steven Summers, I think, pulled off something by by part partially by going in with a period piece. I think that that helps kind of align it with Indiana Jones films, and also it sets it in the era that the original Mummy movie came out, which I think is is sort of a novel idea, and it just has a very light-hearted tone. That, that easily vacillates between the mummy popping out and being all juicy and uh, and Brendan Fraser deciding to scream back at the mummy and then shoot him. And, and uh, I mean, that memorable moment. There's a lot of memorable moments in this film. There's a lot of uh, fun elements to it regarding the characterization of Rick O'Connell and, and Evie and Jonathan and uh, Ardeth Bay even. And um, I think even though... There are elements of it that seem a little distracting. the The film overall is a is a is a ton of fun to watch. I watched it recently. I think probably last year with Kai. She hadn't seen it before, and um, it, it's just it's just finds that perfect balance between being scary and being exciting and uh, and sort of drawing you in. And it has a very breakneck pace that that that, that thing moves. That movie really moves from scene to scene with like no problem and it's it's funny because there's not often that you have you see a film that comes out and it's sort of a, it's an action adventure but with like swashbuckling elements where it just feels like it's just it's it's it feels like pure escapism it feels like the kind of movie that's made to just go out have a have a ton of fun and go on a ride for two hours and I'm, I'm talking about the mummy 99 talking about pirates of the caribbean the curse of the black pearl I'm talking about the Mask of Zorro. There, there's all you get one maybe every few years, and it helps when it's a period piece because it pulls you out of real life and makes you feel like you're entering another world. So I think the Mummy '99 was uh, was wisely uh, opting for that period piece angle, and maybe if the 2017 had done a similar route, it would have had an easier time um, sort of getting the story together. But the Mummy itself, the '99 one not concerned with setting anything up it just tells a very self-contained story focused on this very small group of of individuals um and and it allows them allows the characters to interact in ways that feel natural instead of forcing a love story where i mean it, it, there's still a love story in it but the love story is actually believable as opposed to the 2017 where they put so much emphasis on it that it and, it, and it's never really it, you never buy it they don't have Cruz and Wallace don't really have chemistry. They don't really... I mean, I don't ever feel that he gives a crap about her. And I don't understand why she gives a crap about him, really. Because his character is so inconsistent. And the the humor in the film doesn't really work. And the drama, therefore, because you don't believe the characters emotionally. They're not emotionally grounded. That doesn't work. So it, it, it's, it's, it's a mess. So moving into the cast... Tom Cruise does what he can in 2017. He he's he is Tom Cruise, but the problem is that he's sort of sort of on cruise control for 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 lack of a better term and and yes pun intended that he's basically just playing he's playing the same kind of character he's played a million times, only it's not it's not well fleshed out. It's not it's he's not fully characterized. He's playing kind of a uh, an archetype slash a cliche here, and as the main character, as the protagonist, the one we're supposed to be rooting for, it just doesn't work because you don't really you don't really give a shit about this guy. You don't really care what happens to him. You don't really 
you don't really you don't feel invested in his journey because you don't feel like you have a sense of who he is to begin with. So when his arc happens in the third act and he starts he's sort of uh, supposed to evolve as a character, you don't you don't really care. You don't really feel the the stakes. You don't um, you're just like I said. You're just not invested in him whatsoever. Uh, Russell Crowe is is fine as Henry Jekyll. Uh, he's probably one of the better ones in this film. He's uh, his Mister Hyde did seem a little underwhelming. Um, I I think personally that you could have ho- held back Mister Hyde for future films. I mean, isn't it enough? You would think maybe it would be enough to have Doctor Henry Jekyll in here, but knowing that the kind of movie this is and that they were cramming so much in there, it wasn't surprising to me that Mister Hyde did show up. Um, I was just hoping that they would just have him be Henry Jekyll and let that sort of stand on its own until a future movie where then we'd be like, oh shit, that's right, he's Henry Jekyll. I forgot we haven't seen we haven't seen his other side yet. But they blew their wad right out the gate, and you know we get it here, and it's not that exciting. I mean. Um, I didn't like the League of Extraordinary Gentlemen CG Dr. Mr. Hyde either because that was terrible. That was everything about that movie was terrible, except for Sean Connery, who's also he's always like is always great and everything. But I digress. Um, I don't I don't know. I wasn't I wasn't feeling Mr. Hyde. There was a couple elements in that scene that were cool, but there was nothing about it that made me excited to ooh we need to see more Jekyll and Hyde in another movie. It's it's uh, it, it was. Not um, not a smart move to let Mr. Hyde do his thing this early in the Dark Universe. Annabelle Wallace was, was again, okay. I, I Her character didn't make sense to me. Sort of like Nick Morton, because like I said, I keep going back to this, but it's... if you Once you see the movie, if you haven't seen the film, it's been out a week, so if you haven't seen the film, maybe wait till Redbox or Netflix or something. But if you are still planning on seeing it or you just recently saw it, you know that the love story is really pivotal in this movie. And I don't know why. Because it was probably the least successful element of one of... Oh, yeah, it was probably the least successful element of the film. I'll say that. And um, and Annabelle Wallace, therefore, didn't really have very much interesting to do. She's, she's sort of a strong character in the first act or so. And then becomes damsel in distress for, for Nick Morton to kind of chase after and becomes just like a token for him to sort of work towards uh, because apparently he does have feelings for her. Um, it, it just, yeah, I, I don't, I, she didn't have much to work with, so it's not fair for me to judge Annabelle Wallace as, as an actress based on this performance. I haven't really, I don't think I've really seen her in that much other than this film. Um, yeah, see, she's been in a very small role in X-Men First Class, and films like Annabelle, which I haven't seen, and King Arthur, Legend of the Sword, which I haven't seen because I value my time and I heard it wasn't wasn't that big a deal. Um, so I can't really say what, what she is like as an actress because she doesn't have very much to work with here. Jake Johnson is Chris Vale. That's, I won't go into what happens with his character, but his character seemed entirely pointless. I think they should have just cut him out completely. Or let him have be appear, you know, briefly, and then move on to other things. Um, but uh, but yeah, he was he was wasted here. I, I think I do think Jake Johnson is funny. I actually am one of the few that, that did like his his role in Jurassic World as sort of the audience surrogate. Um, I like Let's Be Cops. I think that's a fun movie. It's not the greatest thing in the world, but it's it's entertaining and and uh, and hilarious. And I think Jake Johnson is a, is a talented guy. But man, he does not fit into this movie, especially with, like I said, the tonal conflict that they have going on. His character is far more comedic, and none of that material really lands for me. The only one in this film that really I thought was strong was Sofia Butella. And of course, I've seen, you know, she was in Kingsman, and she was great in Kingsman, and she was in uh, Star Trek Beyond, and she was great in that. Pretty much I, I, everything she's in, I think she's got a great physicality to her. She's got an, uh, an amazingly unique look and style. And um, she was the only part of this movie that was worth that was worth the price of admission, if you ask me. I mean, I think her mummy, the, the way that they designed it wasn't really the best, but I think that she she owned the role the way as much as she could, and she brought real menace to a character that isn't that isn't really as as developed or realized as uh, as she should have been. I think Aminette is um, is a strong character, 
And I think that Sofia Butella did everything she could to make that character successful. And the fact that she shines in an otherwise pretty dismal film is, I think, a testament to her strength as an actress, to her strength as a physical presence. I mean, you see her in films like Kingsman and Star Trek Beyond, and now this film, you can tell that she she has um, she has a lot of she has well you can tell that she's a classically trained dancer which I mean that that's very evident in just the way that she moves her body and the way she changes that based on the character and the way she just flows um, you know she just flows through uh, you can see that mummy sort of swagger in her when she's uh, you know unleashing unleashing uh, her her minions or whatever not minions like not those universal minions if those universal minions had shown up i might like this movie better actually because I, I i'm a defender of the minions i know i'm in the minority here but i actually do like the minions um, i know that's that's uh i'm kind of outing myself on that but um when she unleashes her her you know henchmen let's put it that way her creatures whatever when she unleashes her reinforcements to take down uh tom cruise and, and the other people I thought that um, that kind of thing, she 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 was believable in the role. Basically, she was the only one that was believable in this film, in the role. Maybe Russell Crowe a little, but other than that, it was either just just bad material. I think is what it was. It, it's Tom. If Tom Cruise can't save your movie, you need a new you need a new script. And the fact that this movie has like six writers credited: David Co David Cap, uh, Christopher McQuarrie. Dylan Koosman, John Spates, Alex Kurtzman himself, and uh, Jenny Lumet. I, I mean, it's that goes to show you that there are so many different visions going on here that they don't really know exactly what the hell they're doing, and uh, it can take you can you can tell the actors can only do so much to elevate this material if the writers don't seem to know exactly what story they want to tell. Going now to the Mummy '99, the uh, the cast there, Brendan Fraser is hella charming here as Rick O'Connell. Um, as I said, he, he sort of does channel an Indiana Jones, Han Solo vibe, but uh, ain't nothing wrong with that, basically. Um, I, I think he does a good job at it. I think he, he brings his own sort of sense of humor to that part and uh, makes Rick O'Connell a character you do want to follow, even though you would be following him into two very shitty sequels, in my opinion. I did not like The Mummy Returns or The Mummy... The Mummy, Tomb of the Dragon Emperor. Um, I thought those were both pretty terrible, but uh, I think that Rick O'Connell does establish it is established right out the gate as a character that you want to root for, that you you hope to see succeed, that you understand where he's coming from, and his development throughout the course of the story. You you buy more so, more importantly, you buy his relationship and his connection to Evie played by Rachel Weisz, Emily Carnahan here. She she was a revelation for me when I saw this film. Um, I already knew Brendan Fraser had been, you know, George of the Jungle and things like that. Um, but Rachel Weisz was, was new to me when I saw The Mummy 99. And, and I think she might, she might deliver the best performance in the movie. I think that she is such a dynamic actress and she brings such a... Innocence, but also uh, like intelligence, but also like sort of naivete to to the role that makes her the perfect combination of strong woman, but also like, um, but also not audience surrogate, but you can you can sort of sense her feeling like she's in over her head, even though she is so strong and so smart and so uh, and so uh, charismatic. I think that that uh, Rachel Weisz brings a lot to this part. And it's it's weird to me that by the time they got to the third movie, they were like, oh, we could put Maria Bello in there. She could do the same thing. Yeah, no, she can't do the same thing. I, I've seen all the Mummy movies, including the Scorpion King. Um, and, uh, and yeah, you, there's only one Evie, and, and it's Rachel Weisz. And she, she did a tremendous job in this film. Um, really strong, supporting female character. Does not feel like a damsel in distress, even when she is. One, she still feels like an equal with Rick O'Connell as opposed to the 2017 where I don't really give a crap about Annabelle Wallace's character. I don't really give a crap about Tom Cruise. For you, for your movie to not make me care about Tom Cruise when Jerry Maguire is like basically my favorite movie, 
you fucked up, basically. I mean, I, I don't know why any other ways to any other way to say it. If you have Tom Cruise in your movie and you tur- you basically turn me against Tom Cruise, where I don't really, I'm totally disinterested in what's going on with his character. That's bad. That's a sign of how bad your 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 film is. I'm just saying. Um, so going back to the '99 one, John Hanna is John is Jonathan, the sort of drunken. Um, you know, devil may care, uh, brother of Evie. He was a lot of fun in this. He's basically the comic relief. If you're, if we're doing analogs to the 99 and the 2017 one, Brendan Fraser over Tom Cruise any day in the, in these, in these characters, in these roles, I know that's weird to say otherwise, because Tom Cruise is a huge movie star and Brendan Fraser's star is decidedly faded over the years. Um, Rachel Weiss is like leagues above Annabelle Wallace. That's ridiculous. And John Hanna is much, 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 much stronger than Jake Johnson's uh, performance in the the new film. It's uh, I, I think he provides that comic relief that you want from a film like this. He keeps the tone light and fun and reminds you that you're in a movie when things get dark. He he kind of resets your uh your sensibility a little bit in fact now talking about this i really want to watch the 99 mummy again i might have to bust it up, bust out the blu-ray and watch that one of these days um the three of them as the ostensible leads are are all really strong um arnold Vosloo as emotep uh another another good performance i think if we're going based on performance wise i think sophia butella commits to it more in the new film but arnold Vosloo has kind of presence without really having to do much he kind of stands there and smiles creepily and you're like whoa this guy's scary um but it also helps that a lot of his performance i mean the mummy is largely cg for for most of the film it's not until like maybe the third act i think where he he is um fully formed where he he doesn't have like a partially decaying face or anything and i think uh, arnold vaslo did it did a great job um bringing that character to life. Also, Oded Fair as Ardeth Bay, the uh, defender of... Man, I don't forget the name of that art, uh, that group that he's with. But basically, one of the... One of the men who is tasked with defending the mummy and keeping it uh, keeping it safe and keeping him from, from gaining power. I think that he... Uh, oh, the Magi. That's it. Here you go. Part of the Magi. Uh, he brings um, a lot of elements of, of uh, fun and, and uh, really he's like the, the true swashbuckler here. Not the true swashbuckler, but he's like the, the, the warrior. He's like the Obi-Wan, I guess, of this and that he has a mission and he's focused on the mission and that's the only thing that matters. So he, because of that, he's very, he's very, um, he's very dry, very um, focused, very, uh, very much a strong foil for the Brendan Fraser character he plays off of. And I think, um, I, I liked Ardeth Bay a lot. I was hoping we would have gotten possibly an Ardeth Bay spinoff, especially after The Mummy Returns, where he has even more to do there. Um, unfortunately, we never did, and now that, that ship has sailed. But I thought that the character was, was a strong addition here. Also, even though it doesn't really have, he doesn't really have an um, a analog to the new film, Kevin J. O'Connor as Benny was, was just so much fun. Um, as the smarmy, um, the smarmy opportunistic dude who basically shifts alliances to cover his own ass and ends up becoming essentially Emotep's, um, Emotep's right hand for, for a lot of the film, uh, as he tries to bring back, uh, Anaxuna Moon played, but played by Patricia Velasquez. Um, you notice I'm mentioning way more of the cast members in the 99 version, so that should go to show you that those characters connected with me way more than anybody in the 2017 film. Um, and it has, even though it has clear protagonists with Brendan Fraser and Rachel Weisz and John Hanna, I think that the ensemble that they have surrounding them is also very strong, and, and I think uh, it really elevates the film when you have such a... a high caliber of actor in every single role nailing it and elevating the material uh, to the next level and I think that's probably part of why that 99 film from Steven Summers really works so well um, I mean and that's not this is not a director who I've really been tremendous fan of um, I mean I did I do not care for G.I. Joe G.I. Joe G.I. Joe Jim used to be used to talking about Indiana Jones G.I. Joe, The Rise of Cobra, does not work for me. I did not like Van Helsing. It's fucking awful. and uh, Or The Mummy Returns. 
I think the best movie he's made is probably uh, Deep Rising was fun. That might be my favorite one of the ones of, of his that I've seen. Um, but yeah, so he brings an interesting an interesting sort of flair to this film. So moving into the production. So as far as the production, CG-wise, obviously 2017 has more technology at the disposal. But honestly, the, the, the visuals in the new film... Um, they don't hundred percent. They don't hundred percent work. Um, there's certain now certain points in the movie where it does look, it does look sort of fake. It does look like it's not, um, not up to the standard of CG that we have now. Um, the '99 film, of course, some of that looks dated as well. But I feel like for the most part, it does hold up because we are thinking you are looking mostly at like sandstorms or like, uh, you know, scarabs and locusts and, and shit like that. That's that's easier to pull off. If anything, I think the weak points in the 99 one might be with the actual mummy himself. Um, he does look super CG and uh, not not as as, you know, not as well uh, executed as the 2017 mummy, but it, it's interesting to note that with the new one, they do mostly rely on, I mean, you see, oh, it's just in CG. Well, they, I feel like it might be a lot of, some more practical effects with some of the mummy stuff in the new one, as opposed to the uh, 99 film where, as I mentioned, Emotep is CG for most of it until towards the end. Um, I think the, the score in, in the mummy in the new film is fine. I don't think there's anything like super amazing about it that stands out to me um the older film i like that basically what i'm getting at is 99 film has stronger music stronger visuals overall stronger production design um there was nothing in the new film to to really of note there was nothing really of note there was nothing really for me to mention oh man this element was really strong um because it's not particularly well directed it's not particularly well um, rendered, any of the visuals. There's nothing in it that, that makes me stand out. You know, that makes me, it made me come out and be like, well, eh, the movie didn't, the story was all over the place. But, you know, at least this was really strong because uh, there was nothing in there that I, there's nothing, no elements of it that really 100% worked um, for me. There, I mean, it's fine to watch if you want to see it, but it's not. It's not something that um, overall it's it's a pretty disappointing uh, entry in uh, the dark universe, I guess, if that's what we're going to call this. So moving into the verdict, in case you haven't been able to tell by now, I didn't give a shit about the 2017 Mummy. It, it was pretty terrible and I was very disappointed because I am a huge Tom Cruise fan. Um, I like the Universal Monsters uh, oeuvre. I like the classic films. I like the uh, idea of kind of rebooting the Universal Monsters for a modern age to to sort of let that... Because, I mean, let's be real. Everybody's talking about, oh, they're trying to force a shared universe out of this. Well, yes, they are now. But back in the day, they had a shared universe of monsters. They had individual films for The Mummy, Dracula, Wolfman, and and things like that. And then they crossed them over. And, and they that was a thing that happened quite a bit back in the day. So it's not like... It's not like Universal is creating a shared universe where there never was one. They're just trying to modernize it and basically bring it back to compete with today's shared universes with the superheroes and, and all of that stuff. And um, I think this is a very, 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 very poor attempt at making that happen. And it makes me worried about the future of this because I do think this is a good idea to bring the monsters in. And have them uh, have them you know sort of cross over and such in a, in a shared space, shared narrative space. But there, this was not this was not a good way to start it. This is this film, if anything, makes me dread the next film in the dark universe because I worry it's going to be even worse or just as bad as this one. And uh, the whole prodigium thing felt really shoehorned in there. And that, they're using that as its connective tissue, which I think is lazy storytelling. Um, they created characters that no one should give, should really care about. And a storyline that it brings nothing new or interesting to the table. And uh, the where it leaves the Nick Morton character 
I mean, it's kind of interesting because I guess we're sort of wondering what's going to happen with him, but it's also, but it's also maybe I think it's too little, too late. You don't really care about him by that point. So when in, when the the finale of the film comes along, you're just kind of rolling your eyes, being like, "All right, I guess if this is what we're doing." Uh, so if you really want to see the Mummy with Tom Cruise, go see it. Form your own opinion, but. My my opinion, my take, Crooked Table's take, go back and go rewatch the 99 film because that movie really does hold up largely. Um, it's charming performances, really strong script, really um, really fun adventure, and, and it's pretty much, um, it's pretty appropriate for the whole family. I mean, you watch it with like your 10-year-old and, and it's a fun romp to, to enjoy. I mean, it's not gonna, you're not gonna break your brain trying to figure it out. It's not... It's not Memento or something. It's a it's a fun popcorn film, but it knows what it is and it pulls it off. Whereas, which is more than I could say for the new film. The new film has no idea what the hell it's trying to do. It doesn't know if it's trying to tell a story about the mummy or if it's trying to set up a dark universe. It almost feels like they should have just had a prodigium movie and just let that set up the dark universe first, and then we wouldn't need all this like fifteen minutes to set up. This is what was going on. This is what we do. I'm like, I don't really care. Um, so, as far as verdicts, the new one, really just a big disappointment for me. Um, I have to go one and a half stars on that. And then for the 99 film, I have to go four stars out of five. Both out of five. And, um, yeah, what a, what a letdown. Bad, bad entry in the summer. And I was, and I was not particularly wowed by the, the trailers for this new movie, but... You know, with Tom Cruise on board and, and the promise of a shared monster universe, I was hoping I was wrong and I was hoping it would be a good movie and it would sort of subvert expectations. But yeah, it, it didn't really do that. So unfortunate. But uh, that will do it for this review. And that's all we have for now. You can rate and review us on iTunes if you'd be so kind. We're also on Stitcher. You can follow me, Robert Gannis Jr., on Twitter at Crooked Table. We're also on Facebook, Crooked Table, and other social medias. You can find more podcasts, reviews, videos, and other movie-related goodies at CrookedTable.com. Next week, I'm not 100% sure what I'm going to talk about. Um, this, this month is weird because there's a lot of films coming out that I'm not really particularly interested in. Um, I'm talking mostly next week about Transformers The Last Night, which I will not be seeing because... Fuck that franchise. I saw the first one and it was eh, and I saw the second one and it was terrible. And I haven't heard particularly good things about three and four. So as someone who did not grow up with the Transformers franchise and did not watch the show and did not have the toys, I don't really I don't really have any reason to care about this. I can understand if you if you love that 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 franchise because you grew up with it, watching the animated one and all that. Uh, the animated film, I mean. Um I could see you then being like, oh my God, Optimus Prime. And he's like all CG and stuff. Um, but I don't care. I have no connection to those characters. So I will not be reviewing that. I'm thinking about maybe checking out The Big Sick, which uh, if it's playing in my area, I know it's coming in limited release um, next week. Uh, if not, I'll come up with something. Maybe I'll do like a news rundown and see some news stuff that, to touch base on. Sort of like I did today with X-Men Dark Phoenix. Um, but we will be back next week with a new episode. Until then, I've been Rob. We'll catch you around the table next week. Roll credits. I promised there would be an encore segment, so here we are. I watched Logan Noir this week. That is, of course, the black and white version of James Mangold's Logan, which, as I mentioned before, is essentially my favorite movie of the year so far. And uh, this film, I mean, there was murmurs about it, about uh, James Mangold doing a black and white version of the film, I believe while it was still in theaters, and they actually did release Logan Noir in theaters for like a one-night-only special event type deal. And um, I think it's a, it's a wise move to try to try that and, and put it in black and white just because the film does feel so classical, does feel like 
um, old-fashioned in a way because it is very much a western and a lot of those films are in black and white and it's it's very morally gray and I think having the film literally be gray sort of reflects the the uh, the um, complexity of the characters of the story that's being told and uh, it was an interesting for, it was for me it was an interesting way of experiencing a film that I already love and and seeing it in a new light I did I did appreciate a lot of the elements of like the shadows and and uh, the way that the black and white sort of accentuates the uh, sort of isolation that the characters feel and um, the weight that they have of their pasts and and what they've done and, and the, the the murky road that, that lies ahead and and all of those elements I feel like are heightened a little bit more in uh, in the black and white version. Um, I probably still prefer the color one just because I, I like vibrancy and and James Mangold's film is, has such strong production design that I, it is it does get a little that does get kind of muted with uh, with the um, Logan Noir version but it, it, it does it is an interesting way to to appreciate the film on another level appreciate the the way it's shot and appreciate the very specific uh, very specific dark and um, atmospheric tone that the film sets up um, just in the way in the way that the the story is told and the way that it, it resolves itself and and all of that so I just wanted to give you guys a quick note as my encore highly recommending Logan Noir uh, it's included in the blu-ray set that I picked up and I think pretty much all of them but it's not advertised uh, on the back as like as, as a special feature I don't believe I think it's more of a like limited time type deal because when I the one I bought I got mine at Target. Um, it was in a separate it was in a separate like uh, slipcover within inside the kind of tucked inside the uh, the Blu-ray proper set. Um, so it might be one of those things that is if you, if you buy the the film now that you get the Logan Noir included, but if you wait long enough and they like re and they reissue it or something, um, they they might not have that as an option. It might be one of those uh, those limited edition things. So if you do like Logan, if you did if you love the film like I did, and you're planning on owning it, maybe maybe get it sooner rather than later because I don't know if that element uh, the Logan Noir version is going to be um, available long term or, or if it's more of a uh, like I said more of a limited edition type of deal so highly recommended Logan Noir I mean I don't care color black and white purple and green whatever colors you put this in um, Logan's is a tremendous film and you can find my uh, link to the podcast review where I talk about that in depth for about an hour uh, just Logan um, you can find that link in the show notes below uh, that's pretty much all I have, so uh, we'll catch you guys next week. This has been a production of CrookedTable.com. All rights reserved. <laughs>